Well, obviously, uh, it's a privilege to be together on Easter morning. Uh, As Christians, obviously, this is a special day uh, in the life of every Christian. Uh, It's a blessing. It's not just the day that we break out that suit that's been uh, collecting dust in the closet, right? Uh, It is the day where in history, Jesus rose again from the dead. He rose again. He's alive right now. And the day that that took place in history is this Sunday, but 2020-ish years ago. And that really did take place, right? Now, of course, there are all sorts of opinions on this topic. If you ask 100 people, you get 100 different answers about where Jesus is and what he did and whether or not he's truly alive and whether or not he really rose from the dead. And so this morning, what I want to do is just walk through what I would call Peter's perspective on the resurrection of Christ or Peter's perspective on Easter. I want to look at Peter's perspective on this topic. Now, obviously, if you're here with us, uh, some, some might argue that this is false, that Jesus never really did rise from the dead, that that's just a myth, maybe that he never even existed, that he's just the concoction of a group of followers. Some people would say that it's impossible to tell and that it may have happened, but it doesn't really matter right now in history. Other people would argue that it's not a true resurrection of the dead, but that Jesus just woke up from a short-lived coma due to the trauma of crucifixion and that he just woke up from that. And so uh, it wasn't really that he died and he woke up and he was ferreted off by the disciples and uh, they, they pretended that he rose from the dead. And if you're here this morning and you're not a committed Christian, you might fall into any of these camps. And there's many other opinions about the resurrection, actually. You can ask a host of people and you get, as I said, a hundred answers. And maybe you're here this morning and someone invited you or you were brought by some friend and in your heart you say, well, yes, that might even be true, but it's just not that big of a deal to me. It doesn't affect my life day to day. But what I want to do is look again, as I said, how the disciples understood this. What was their perspective? The problem with getting Peter's perspective on Easter is that he's dead. If Peter were here, I would sit down and I would let him preach, of course, right? But he's not here. And so what do we do? How do we get Peter's perspective on the death and resurrection of Christ? How do we figure out what Peter would have told us? What's fascinating is that what Peter thought is actually recorded in the book of Acts for us in chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look through the verses 22 through 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one in the pew in front of you. And if you open to page 1509, uh, you will find Acts chapter 2. And so uh, follow along with me. This is an important text and really an important issue that we have to think about. Now, as I said, if, if you think about Peter, this must have been an incredibly emotional roller coaster for him. Uh, remember Peter's life. He really had seen an amazing number of things in his life. He had walked with Jesus personally throughout Jesus' life and ministry. He saw Jesus do all the things that, he, that are recorded in the Gospels. He, he had seen him perform uh, just count, almost countless miracles, right? He had done remarkable things. Peter had even watched him as he had been cruelly tortured and beaten and executed, Peter felt what it felt like to watch Jesus die. He he stood there and observed these things happen. And not only that, but he watched all those things take place and he knew in his heart that he had denied Christ three times. 
It must have been an incredibly weighty moment. Um, From the highs of thinking that the kingdom was coming, that the Messiah was here, to the lows of watching him be crucified and even himself denying him. And then, then suddenly after that, meeting him again and seeing him again alive. I mean, imagine what he must have felt in that moment. He saw him resurrected. He was with him several times over the course of the following weeks. And he had been forgiven for his denial specifically. And he must have been restored in his heart. And then he was given this great mission of sharing the gospel and telling people about what had happened and proclaiming the resurrection. And now in Acts chapter 2, Peter begins to do just that. He's witnessing what has happened to Christ. He's a witness of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And he's facing a huge crowd of people. And this story is in the temple. A huge crowd of people, a large number of people in the temple. And now he's going to proclaim to them this reality. And his role as witness now begins. And in these three verses, it's fascinating. Peter summarizes his observations. It's his, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And so we're going to walk through them one at a time. And the first point this morning is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, from verse 22. Look at verse 22 with me. Peter says this. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Now, the first thing that Peter does is he says that he he reminds them of what they already knew themselves, that Jesus had come and that he had been proven to be who he said he was. Jesus had a miraculous ministry, didn't he? Uh, Peter was a witness to that miraculous ministry. He saw all of those things take place. He, he was there when the man's withered hand regrew. He was there when the widow's son and Nain was raised from the dead. Jesus had done thousands of miracles during his time of his ministry. But it wasn't just Peter who was a witness of this. The Jews knew it too, didn't they? They knew what had happened. Everyone in Israel knew what was going on. Jesus had literally effectively banished illness from the entire nation during his ministry. The people that were sick were coming to him, being healed, being restored. There was almost no sickness left in Israel by the time that Jesus died. He healed people with physical challenges like paraplegics and people with withered limbs. He he healed the deaf. He healed the blind. He raised dead people back to life again on more than one occasion. All of these things had taken place, and everywhere he went, he cast out demons. All of these things had been done in Israel, and everyone knew them. In fact, in the book of Mark, we find out that even King Herod, who was the Roman prefect of the area at that time, he knew about Christ. He had heard the reports, and he was excited to meet him. As a king, he should have been able to just call him into his office or into his palace, and he wasn't able to do that, but he wanted to meet him, right? Everyone knew that Jesus was there. Everyone knew that this guy was famous. And so when Peter says in verse 22, just as you yourselves know, it's true. They all knew that Jesus was who he claimed to be. But what was it that the miracles proved? What was it proving? What what was Jesus proving by doing all of these really remarkable things? And the answer is that he was two things. Number one, that he was the Messiah, that he was the promised Messiah to Israel. And second, that he was the true son of God. He was proving that he was the Messiah and that he was the Son of God to the nation of Israel. In fact, in 
Peter's gospel, which is the book of Mark, Peter dictated it to Mark. Mark just wrote it down and then took credit. Peter, in the very beginning, the very first verse of the book of Mark is the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus who is the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what Peter intends to prove in his gospel, and that's what Jesus intended to prove in his life and in his ministry. The entire nation of Israel witnessed that reality. And now Peter here as the spokesman stands up and he says, you all know this. You know that Jesus is God. You know that he's the true Messiah. You know that God proved that beyond a shadow of a doubt to you. Now, of course, Peter's experience was very similar to the Jews, wasn't it? You remember the story of Peter's experience. He, if you read the Gospels, he just bumbles around a lot, doesn't he? He's very self-aggrandizing. He's proud. He, he doesn't understand the purposes of the miracles. He, he misses the truth of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And it takes all the way eight chapters of the book of Mark, in fact, before Peter makes this confession that Jesus is the Christ. It takes him a long time to understand what's going on. And even when he does make the confession, what does he do immediately after? He, he tries to grab glory for himself. So Peter just keeps making mistakes really all the way through the gospel. He, he doesn't understand it. And yet throughout that time, he's a witness of what is true about Christ. And so he can communicate it. But of course, we can understand this, can't we? You can understand Peter's perspective. I mean, Jesus claimed to be God. That's an incredibly difficult thing to prove. That's a profound thing. And I can understand how Peter would be hesitant to grasp onto that. But Jesus did prove it over and over and over again, didn't he? He proved it. And so Peter tells them something that he himself knows beyond the shadow of a doubt. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's furnished plenty of proof to prove who he says he was. He is God. Jesus is God. And this is true. And it's just as true now as it ever was. Jesus is God. He's the God who created the universe. He made that evident, not only by what he did, but, and not only by who, who he claimed to be, but also by the miracles that he performed and the testimony of his disciples. But as you know, the Jews did not accept this obvious truth. It was so clear, but the Jews turned away from the truth. And this is point two this morning. Jesus was crucified. If you look at Acts 2.23, we have the second verse here. So Peter starts in 22 and says, you know that Jesus is who he claimed he was. He is the Messiah and he is God. But then he says, verse 23, this one delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now this is an amazingly strong statement. This is Peter, the guy who was nervous to tell the servant girl that he knew Christ. And here he is in front of the nation, really, the entire nation of Israel in the temple. And what does he say? He says, you nailed him to a cross. He accuses them of putting the Messiah to death. Isn't that amazing? He's so bold. He's willing to make that statement to these people. And he has no fear of them at this point. He just communicates it. And what he says here is interesting. He says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. See that? By the hands of godless men, you put him to death. Now, what's he talking about? Now, obviously, the Jews couldn't have actually killed Jesus. Why not? 
Well, Roman law stated that only people who had the right, the only people that had the right to kill were the Romans. The only people who could take life were the Romans. A Jew couldn't kill another Jew. That was against the law. But the Romans had the right to exercise capital punishment. And that's why the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate. They can't kill him. He's a famous guy in Israel, and they can't just take his life. And so what they do is they bring him to Pilate, and they expect Pilate to put him to death. And they accuse him in front of Pilate, and what Pilate says in John 18.38 is fascinating. He says, I find no guilt in him. What's the point? The point is that the Roman authorities say, no, no, he's an innocent man. He shouldn't be put to death. There was nothing in Jesus that was worthy of death. And in fact, Pilate tries to have him released at this moment. He tries to free him from the condemnation that the Jews want to exercise on him. But the people of Israel pressure him and and Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified and he washes his hands of any responsibility. And so Peter says, you put him to death, but he says, you put him to death by the hands of godless men. Who who are the godless men? Literally in Greek, it's anamos. It's those who don't have the law. They're Gentiles. Roman soldiers put Jesus to death, didn't they? Pilate was the one who handed down the death sentence. That's who crucified him. Men without the law of Moses. But Peter says, yeah, they have guilt in that, but their guilt is small compared to the guilt of the Jews who demanded his death, even though they knew that he was the Messiah. And, though, and so he tells them that they did this evil act. They nailed Jesus to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But what's fascinating is that that was not an accident. The beginning of the verse tells us who made that plan. And listen to what it says. It says, he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, that that sentence begs a ton of questions, and I'd love to answer all of them, but we can't. And so I just want to show you the things that it tells us, the, the questions that it answers. What does it tell us? It tells us that every moment of the death of Jesus, every moment of that crucifixion, everything was being carried out according to God's plan. God had a perfect plan, and he was carrying it out perfectly as Jesus died on a cross. Every event that was taking place was perfectly ordered by God. The death of Jesus wasn't an accident. It didn't catch God off guard. He he was ready, and he actually had planned these events to take place. It wasn't that the wheel of history rolled over Christ, like Albert Schweitzer said. It's that Jesus himself chose to lay down his life. He chose to sacrifice himself He chose to die on a cross, and all of that was done by the plan of God. But remember, Peter had participated in that. Think of Peter's experience at this moment. He had participated in that. Peter had denied that he knew Christ three times. Three times as Jesus was in trial and as he was being accused, Peter denied that he even knew him. Three times he left Jesus alone, standing there without anyone to defend him. Three times Peter had chosen self-protection over love for Jesus. Three times he had sinned against him. And Peter could look back over the last couple of months of his life and he had put it all together. He had figured out how it all fit together now. It all was right. God had planned it all. None of it was an accident. All of this had to happen. Jesus had to be rejected by the people of Israel in order to fulfill Psalm 118.26, right? He had to be rejected by the Jews in order to fulfill the scripture. He had to be 
He had to suffer at the hands of the Gentiles to fulfill Psalm 22, 12 through 15. He had to die for the sins of those who would believe in him. He had to perish because of Isaiah 53, four through six. And even in Peter's own mind, Jesus had to be abandoned by his closest friends. He had to be to fulfill Zechariah 13, seven. And Peter could look back and he could understand it. He saw it all now. All of it was planned. It was God's intention. He had designed every moment of these events. Jesus' death was not an accident. It was planned. And in fact, it was the plan in all of human history. The most important event that ever took place in human history is the death of Christ. In fact, all the universe exists exclusively as a stage for that event to take place so that Jesus could die and so that God could be glorified. And yet Peter still tells the Jewish people, you did this. God planned it, but you carried it out. In other words, you're guilty. You're guilty for putting the Messiah to death. And they understand that because later in the chapter, they actually say, what must we do? They're pierced in their hearts and they say, what must we do? They ask him, what should we do? So they understood that they were guilty for this sin. And so Jesus is dead. He's been crucified. He's in the tomb. But the story, of course, doesn't end there, right? And this is point three. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. This is verse 24. Look what verse 24 says. It says, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter ends this little summary with this verse and he points to the reality that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive right now. And he says, God raised him from the dead. You say, well, wait a minute. If Jesus is God, why did God have to raise him from the dead? And it's true that God raised him from the dead, but it's also true that Peter tells us here that Jesus raised himself from the dead. Notice what it says. At the end of verse 24, it says, it was impossible for him to be held in the power of death. Why could death not hold Jesus? Why could death not hold on to him? It couldn't keep him. Why? Death holds everyone who dies. You know, my my own father died two years ago, and I remember sitting in the room with him when he died, and it was a crazy experience. Maybe you've been in a room with someone who dies or near someone who's died. It is a wild thing to watch, because in one moment, they're alive, and then they exhale, and they're not alive, and the power of death wraps itself around them, and they are gone. And they cannot escape that power of death. Death has power over them. In fact, every living thing on the planet will someday feel the embrace of the power of death. And death tried to do that to Jesus, but it failed. Death could not hold him. Why? Why could death not hold Jesus? And the answer is very simple, isn't it? He's the author of life. Jesus is the prince of life, he calls himself. In fact, he calls himself the resurrection and the life. Jesus has life in himself. Every other thing that is alive on the planet, my life, your life right now is on loan from him. He's the one who gives life to everything that exists. And therefore, when death comes, death comes according to his plan. He has life in himself, and therefore, when death tried to hold Jesus, he sat up in the tomb, and he was alive. You know why Jesus was dead for three days? His body. It was dead for three days because he wanted it to be. 
He didn't have to stay dead for three days. He could have died and then just raised again at that moment. It would have been done. He stayed in the tomb. His body stayed in the tomb. His spirit went to heaven. His body stayed in the tomb for three days because he chose to wait three days. It was his will that that would happen. His life was not taken from him. He gave it up and he took it up again when the time had come. And so Peter says, God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death because it was impossible for death to hold him. He sat up in the tomb and he's alive. And that life that Jesus took up at that moment is a life that lasts forever. He's alive right now. Now, Paul says in Colossians chapter two, verse eight, that the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus in bodily form. And we don't have time to unpack that. And even if we did, we could never unpack it. (laughs) But that reality is true. The fullness of deity dwells in Jesus right now. All that God is, is in Christ, in his body, right now, in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is alive now. He's alive now. Now just put yourself in Peter's shoes again. Think of what he must have felt after Jesus was crucified. Imagine Saturday for Peter. He had denied him. He doesn't even know what he's going to do. He's denied him. He's turned from him. Jesus is dead. All of his hopes and expectations are essentially on the fritz. Everything seems to be over. And for three days, Peter feels the weight of that loss of the life of Christ. And then suddenly, Jesus is alive. Peter meets him. He sees him. He speaks with him. He hugs him. (laughs) He's back. I mean, can you imagine what Peter must have felt? Everything that he had feared was completely reversed, wasn't it? Every fear that Peter had was completely reversed. The one that Peter had known so well, Jesus, the true Messiah, all of it was true. Everything was real for him. He understood all of it. It was absolutely crystal clear that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and it was proven once and for all. Peter must have been just ecstatic. I mean, can you imagine? And then to have himself restored by Christ at that moment, all of that coming together, he understands his weakness and he just rejoices in the life of Christ. And so no wonder Peter steps up in the temple and in front of thousands of people says, listen, friends, this is true. This is true. Jesus is alive. So this is all true of Peter. But what does that have to do with us? (laughs) What does that have to do with us? What does it have to do with you this morning? All of this is true, but what would Peter say to you if he were standing here right now? What would Peter say to us here this morning on Easter morning? And I think if Peter were here, there are three things that he would want you to hear. Three things that he would want to say. The first is this, that this is true. The first and most important thing that anyone could ever believe the most important thing that you could ever hear this morning is that all of this is absolutely true. Jesus really did live a perfect life. He really did. It really took place. And he really was crucified on a cross. He really did die. And he really is alive right now. It's true. It's absolutely true. When Peter stands up and says this, notice he doesn't try to prove anything to anyone. He doesn't give reasons why you should believe the resurrection. Have you noticed that? He doesn't say any of those things. What does he do? He doesn't stand up to prove it to anyone. He just says, this is true. This is true. Peter isn't an apologist. Peter is a witness. He's a witness. 
In fact, he says that in Acts 2.32. He says, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. He's not trying to convince anyone of this truth. He just says, it's absolutely true. And my job this morning on Easter morning is not to try to coax any of you into believing this or give you the nine arguments about why this is true. That's not my job. My job this morning is to stand here and tell you Jesus is alive. And it's true. It is absolutely true beyond any question or any doubt. Jesus is alive and he has been given authority in heaven and on earth and a day is coming when he will return to judge the earth. It's true. And Peter would say all those things to you this morning. He is the true Messiah. He is the Son of God. And Easter rejoices about that truth. That's not all. Second, Peter would say that Jesus is Lord. How do I know that? Because he says that later on in this chapter. He says, this Jesus, God has made both Lord and Christ. Jesus is Lord. And when we say that Jesus is Lord, what does that mean? (laughs) What does that mean? It means that he is God over heaven and earth. He is the sovereign Lord of your life. Jesus is the sovereign one who is over everything. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the reality that he will come again and punish the world for sin and he will judge the world in righteousness is 100% true. Every sin that has ever been committed in the history of the world will be punished. Every sin, listen to that, that has ever been committed in the history of the world, sins of thought, sins of word, and sins of action, every sin will be punished. Every failure will be addressed. Every injustice will be made right. Everything will be put right. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that should terrify you. That should absolutely terrify you because the God who created the Son is going to come and judge the world and he will judge it righteously. Listen, every one of us here has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Every one of us has. I have, you have, all of us have. Some of those sins are big, some of them are little, some of them are private. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and every one of us will stand before him and give an answer for our sins. And what we rightfully deserve for our sins is death. Paul says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. What we have rightfully earned for our sins is death, not just physical death, but spiritual death forever and ever and ever. And he will judge the world in righteousness. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, my appeal to you would be to consider that that is true. This isn't a myth, it's not a story, it's not something that people made up, it's not just a 2,000 year old book, this is true. This is true for you this morning. And if you die today, you will stand before this Lord and he will call you to an account for your sins. But that's not the only thing he would want you to hear. The third thing is this. You can have his eternal life. You can have his eternal life. Even though the wages of our sin is death, Peter would tell you that you can have the eternal life of Christ. Even though you deserve death for every sin you've ever committed, even though what you rightfully deserve right now is to be snuffed out and to be judged in hell forever, you can have life. Why? Why? Because Jesus didn't die for his own sins. 
Isn't that amazing? Jesus died, but he didn't die because he deserved punishment. In fact, he's the only person who ever earned heaven. He didn't die because he had sinned. He had earned a different wage than any of the rest of us. Jesus earned the wages of eternal life because he never sinned. All the way up to the point of death, even death on a cross, he was obedient to God. He always was obedient. And so he earned a wage of eternal life. And what the gospel tells us is that God will take our wages, what we rightfully should pay because of our sin, and he will take those wages off of us. He will clear the ledger of my sin and he will put them on Jesus so that Jesus will die for my sins, my failures, my sins, my unrighteousness, all of it taken off of me and placed on him. And amazingly, his perfect life, the wages of heaven that he earned, taken off of him and placed on me. So that now I don't have to do anything. I receive eternal life from him. Conceive of how crazy that is. You don't do anything. He does everything for you. He takes your sin off of you and he places his eternal life on you so that you are united with him once and for all. How? How does he do that? And the answer is very simple, isn't it? God planned the death of Christ for this one purpose, to bring himself glory by offering complete forgiveness to anyone who will trust in him, who will place their faith in Jesus In other words, Jesus put an end to the agony of death, not only for himself, but he put an end to the agony of death for everyone who is connected to him and his indestructible life. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's free. It's free. He doesn't expect you to give any money. God owns the universe. He does not need your $25 right? He owns everything. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't need your service. God is sovereign over everything. He doesn't need you to like scrap together a little house and for him, he doesn't need any of those things. He doesn't expect you to do some religious service to get your forgiveness. He doesn't need that. In fact, he gives it freely to you. Every other religion in the world would tell you that you have to do certain things to get to God and Christianity says no. Jesus did it all to come to you. So how do you get it? This is the tricky part. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. I would venture to guess that no one here would claim to be perfect. I remember several years ago I said, is anyone here perfect? And everyone sheepishly is quiet except this one little boy right here in the front row. And he raised his hand and said, I am. (laughs) I think he was four. And his mom quickly affirmed that was not the case. (laughs) All of us know we're not perfect, don't we? We know we're not perfect. But it isn't just acknowledging that we've sinned. Everyone, Everyone would say that they've sinned, but there's more than that. It's not just saying that you've sinned. It's saying that you are sinful. That you are sinful. It's not just saying that you've committed some sins, but that you are a sinner that you have no way to get yourself to God in yourself, that you have no righteousness of your own, that you have nothing to offer God, and in fact, just the opposite. You are bringing to him 
all of the filth of the unrighteousness of your life. To be saved, you have to start there. You know, the good news of the death and resurrection of Christ sounds great until you know you have to abandon yourself until you know you have to give up on your own self-righteousness, until you know you have to come to Jesus empty-handed and carrying only what you have that needs to be forgiven. You have to acknowledge that what you rightfully deserve from God is punishment in hell forever. You have to confess that. You know, the Bible says If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess something in Greek, it's a compound word. It means to say the same as. It means to say the same as. In other words, what God wants you to do is say about yourself what he's saying about you. And what does God say about all of us? That we've all sinned and fallen short of his glory and that what we rightfully deserve is hell. He wants us to say that to him. Why? because that's the only way to receive forgiveness. Because God doesn't want cobbled together self-righteousness because he doesn't need it. He wants to give you the free gift of eternal life through Jesus so that Jesus gets all the glory. And that's the gospel. The key that opens the door to eternal life is repentance for your sins and faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. Why? Because repentance acknowledges that Jesus died for your sins, that he died for your sins. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, he once said, it is not enough to know that Jesus is a savior. You must know that he is your savior. It's not enough to know that Jesus died for sins, but that he died for yours. If Peter were here right now, that's exactly what he'd tell you. And we know this because that's what he told people throughout his life. He told people that over and over and over again, to repent and to trust in the finished work of Christ. And so let me just ask you this morning, each of you, whether you come to this church regularly or you're a visitor, I just wanna ask you, because this is the most personal thing about you. Everything else about you pales in comparison to this one thing. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And what's crazy about this is that you cannot see my heart. You have no idea if I actually believe any of these things. And I have no idea if any of you really believe this. Only you know. And just like at Judgment Day, you will stand before God and he will know if this was true about you. So, do you believe this? Do you believe that there is nothing you can bring to God except the sin that needs forgiving? And do you believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died on a cross and that he rose again from the dead and that he offers eternal life to you simply by trusting in his finished work? Do you believe that? And if you do, have you repented for your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have, listen, you're united with him forever. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? If you're here and you're a Christian and that's yours, you are already experiencing the glory of the eternal life that you will have forever. How? 
not on the outside. Paul said our outer man is decaying, right? We're falling apart. That, that, that's a word that's used for rotten fruit. And our outer man is rotting like an old peach in the bottom drawer of a refrigerator. But our inner man is being renewed, what? Day by day. Every day we're reminded about this truth about what Christ has done for us. Every day we enjoy the beauty and the glory of Christ living in us. And so if you're a Christian and this is true of you, then you are united with him forever. And you know what? You are a witness, just like Peter was, that Jesus is alive. No one needs to convince you that Jesus rose from the dead. No one needs to give you the proofs of that every morning because why? You know him. (laughs) You know him. He's inside of you. You see his glory in you and it is finished for you. You know he's alive because he's real to you. And so if you're a Christian, just rejoice in that and be a witness for that truth. But if not, I just want to plead with you. I want to plead with you. If you're here and you don't believe this, even if you've been in church your entire life, you spent your entire life going to church, you spent your entire life looking good on the outside for other people, you spent your entire life trying to make other people happy with your Christian virtues, listen, that will mean nothing when you stand in the presence of Christ. If you don't truly know Christ in your heart, if you don't truly believe these things, then let me just plead with you to come to him this morning, to repent of your sins and to trust in what Christ has done for you, to tell him what he's already said about you, that you're a great sinner and that you need a savior and to believe that Jesus died on the cross on your behalf. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ. Lord, we thank you for the death of Christ, Lord, that he willingly gave up his life. Lord, that he stayed in the grave by his own choice. And Lord, that he took his life up again because he was the author of life, the prince of life. Lord, that he is the resurrection and the life. And Lord, we thank you that he is alive even right now. Lord, that he lives seated at your right hand and through your spirit, Lord, he lives in us so that we can truly say that it is his glory that we see with the eyes of our hearts. Lord, we thank you that these things are true. And Lord, I pray, Lord, I pray for everyone who's here, each one of us, Lord, that we would come and stand before this truth and give an answer, even today. Lord, is it true of me Is it true? Do I believe these things? Do I believe that Jesus died on the cross and that my sins were truly there with him as he said it is finished? And do I believe that he rose again and that he is dwelling inside of me right now? And do I know him? Do I know him? Lord, I pray that we would examine ourselves to see if we're truly in the faith. Lord, that we would say that Christ is in us and that we know his glory in our hearts. Lord, if there's anyone who doesn't know you this morning, Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of their hearts to see this truth. Lord, we rejoice that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. And Lord, we know that he has all authority. And Lord, we pray that he would come again quickly. Lord, that he would redeem this world. Lord, that he would take us to be with himself forever. And Lord, we pray all of this for his name's sake, for his glory. In his name we pray, amen.